0: Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. The usual two guests today. First, we'll hear from John Clark, an anti-poverty organizer in Toronto, on problems with the concept of a universal basic income. And then at the bottom of the hour, Isabel Hilton explores the meaning of Xi Jinping becoming China's president for life. Before all that, some words on Trump's metals tariffs. I don't like them. Here's an audio version of what I wrote for the nation's website explaining why. Why? It was sad to see some labor and labor-friendly people like Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown and AFL-CIO President Richard Trumka cheering Trump's decision to impose a 25% tariff on imported steel and a 10% tariff on aluminum. They framed it as a just response to unfairness and cheating by foreign producers, which usually means China, which is little different from Trump's rationale. Brown's rhetoric had a combative aroma to it. If we fail to stand up for steel jobs today, China will come after other jobs up and down the supply chain tomorrow. The tariffs are right for Trump, nationalistic, truculent, bombastic. But people who cherish international solidarity and humane social policies should think again. They will do little, if anything, to help the steel industry, could harm steel-using industries, will probably provoke retaliations that will leave everyone worse off, and will add a fresh dose of bellicosity to a world already overdosing on it. The European Union has announced intentions to raise duties on red state products like peanut butter, Harleys, and bourbon. Announcing the measures, European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker said, we can also do stupid. We also have to be this stupid. China is also threatening retaliation. Soybean farmers in the Midwest fear they may be targets. Whenever tariffs are in the news, mainstream commentators inevitably draw analogies to the Smoot-Hawley tariff, the 1930 bill that is almost universally credited for helping make the Great Depression great by provoking a global trade war. Those comparisons are way overdone, but Trump was characteristically wrong when he pronounced trade wars good and easy to win. It's not clear how Trump imagines victory in this fight. Let's take a look at the economics of steel, an industry Trump equates with national greatness. If that's the measure, American greatness has suffered from a long bear market. Back in 1958, the heart of an era that Trump seems to romanticize, steel accounted for less than 1% of total U.S. employment. Twenty years later, 1978, it was down to half a percent, and that's before the accelerated deindustrialization of the 1980s brought us the term rust belt. Steel's share of employment is now under a tenth of a percent. But it's not like steel itself is disappearing. While steel employment in the U.S. is off 54% since 1990, the production of steel, by the Federal Reserve's measure, is up 18%. Between 1990 and 2015, the latest year available, productivity per hour of labor in the steel sector was up 151%. Labor's share of value added in the industry, the portion of the difference between revenues and the cost of raw materials that's paid out to workers, fell from 23% in 1990 to 13% in 2015. In other words, steel workers aren't doing very well, but the steel industry is doing okay. It's not booming, but it is solidly profitable. It's hard to see how Trump's tariffs are going to change any of this in any meaningful way. We have some recent experience with steel tariffs, the ones imposed by George W. Bush in March 2002. Bush lifted them in December 2003 under threat of retaliation by the EU with another politically well-selected set of targets, Florida Oranges and Harleys again supplemented by complaints from domestic steel users. During the 21 months the tariffs were in effect, steel employment fell by 9%, but production rose by 20%. There's evidence that steel-using industries like autos and appliances took a mild hit from the resulting higher prices. A survey by the U.S. International Trade Commission, an independent quasi-judicial branch of government, found higher steel prices, at least for a while, that were hard to pass along and mildly increased difficulty in sourcing steel. Overall, the ITC estimated that the tariffs resulted in a welfare loss of $42 million, an almost immeasurably trivial amounts by the standards of the U.S. economy. Of course, the story could have been different had Bush not lifted the tariffs and the retaliations escalated. It wouldn't be surprising if Trump does the same. He's already making exceptions, though it's worrisome that he is now ordering his aides to prepare a fresh set of tariffs on Chinese goods. So the tariffs are likely to have little economic effect, though they do add to the political ugliness that's the Trump regime's stock in trade. But they demonstrate something curious about Trump's political vision. Unlike earlier American presidents, Trump is not an apostle of a better world to come. There's none of Clinton's bridge to the 21st century, or his annoying appropriation of Fleetwood Mac's Don't Stop Thinking About Tomorrow. While a lot of that was campaign con artistry, there's still something to be said for the outlook in general. Trump is more interested in building a bridge to 1958, when steel and coal were regarded as some kind of royalty. It would make more sense instead to develop an industrial future, one manufacturing the infrastructure of a clean energy and transportation system in the abandoned parts of the Midwest and South, regions suffering from poverty, isolation, addiction, and early death. But that would take major amounts of public investment and planning, things that Trump and his cronies are profoundly opposed to. That's what we should be pushing for, not cheering on snake oil like metals tariffs. And that's the end of my nation polemic. Okay, now for a skeptical look at the Universal Basic Income, or UBI. The underlying concept of the UBI is simple. The government pays everyone a certain amount a year without conditions. You don't have to be poor or disabled or old or young. You just get the check regardless. The idea has broad support, from Silicon Valley billionaires to zero-work communists. That breadth of appeal is one of its selling points. And one of the things driving the appeal is the belief that robots are going to take all of our jobs away. I'm deeply skeptical that's in the cards, but the idea has broad support, from Silicon Valley billionaires to zero-work communists. Complications arise as soon as you get beyond the basic definition. How large did the UBI be? Enough to allow people to live half-decently without working, or a sub-poverty stipend? What about other forms of benefits? Should the UBI replace them or supplement them? The Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD, a Paris based official think tank sponsored mostly by the world's richest countries, ran some numbers last year looking at over 20 countries, and what they came up with is troubling to supporters of the UBI. The OECD played with the idea of consolidating all current benefit programs into a single cash payment, what would, in the jargon of economics, be a budget neutral program. The resulting UBI would be quite small, ranging from half the poverty line in Luxembourg to under 10% in Japan and Turkey it would be about 20% of the poverty line in the U.S., currently about 12500 for an individual and 20000 for a family of three. Although UBI payments to middle- and upper-income recipients can be taxed away, it's clear that anything like a decent benefit would be very expensive. And in most countries, existing beneficiaries of social spending, the unemployed, the disabled, would be worse off than they are now if those programs were abolished to fund the UBI. So as appealing as the UBI might sound, there are severe complications in transforming it from fantasy to reality. And there are serious philosophical issues involved as well. To mull all this over, the practical and the philosophical, here's John Clark, an organizer with the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty. John Clark. Before we uh, get to the substance of the thing, what's the state of the, uh, um, the debate over basic income in Canada? Is it uh, in, under serious consideration?
1: At this point, there are three provinces. The matter is is under serious consideration. Prince Edward Island, there's been a, a, an agreement that a, a pilot will take place. Uh, a pilot is up and running here in um, here in Ontario, and the government in in British Columbia has also has also decided that they're going to uh, experiment with basic income, although the details have not yet uh, have not yet emerged. Uh, something that is been prepared in the province of Quebec as well that they're referring to as basic income, but it's rather controversial and dubious. But the issue is certainly under serious consideration uh, by by governments, and in Canada as in many countries, there's a, a, a very significant lobby pushing for basic income.
0: Yeah, that was my next question. Where is the uh, the agitation for this coming from? The, the support
1: from our perspective, basic income is a is a is a policy that in, in some ways. You could almost say is all things to all people. So you have very right-wing advocates of of basic income uh, pushing for a very neoliberal version and then you have uh, a sort of a left liberal uh, lobby that is pushing for a a version of basic income that they believe we disagree, but they believe could be implemented in such a way as to be uh, redistributive and uh, to reduce p- poverty and levels of inequality, etc. But there's a very large academic and agency-based, I would say largely, uh, lobby for basic income on an international scale.
0: Yeah, well, that's one of the interesting things about the, the idea is the, uh, the diverse <laughs> quality of its support. You have Silicon Valley types supporting it. And also some people on the far left, uh, both of whom seem to embrace an idea that employment is traditionally conceived as disappearing, and this is a way to uh, keep people alive. And uh, the support across the political spectrum is said to be a selling point. Um, You, however, are not a fan. Uh, What what is your critique of it?
1: Perhaps let's look at at the Ontario model that's now being experimented with. Because it's kind of a checklist of how a system that is called basic income could be used to advance um, what we might call the neoliberal agenda. So what is being provided is an income that is higher than people receive presently on social assistance in Ontario, but it's still a sub poverty income. So it's not going to be an income that would enable people to withdraw from the labour market if they chose to or uh, survive the, the robot future. It's a it's a low payment. It's going to be provided primarily to people who are waged but uh, but but still living on on very low income. So it's designed primarily as a a wage top up, which is another way of saying a subsidy to low paying employers.
0: That sounds somewhat like our earned income tax credit.
1: Yes, but course, if this were introduced on a, on a, a, on a, a jurisdictional scale, we're talking about an enormous intensification of, of the process of topping up uh, people's wages out of, the, out of the tax revenues. The other element of, of the right-wing basic income that somebody like, for example, the, the political scientist Charles Murray puts forward, is the notion that basic income must uh, not augment existing systems of social provision, uh, but, but replace them, so uh, that you become a, a shopper with your basic payment, shopping for things that once were provided by the state but have now been privatized. Or, and the Ontario pilot contains some of the elements of that. So that people that go on the pilot uh, who are presently on social assistance will lose support for things like hearing aids, eyeglasses, mobility devices, medical transportation, those, those kinds of things. So already with this relatively generous small-scale showpiece operation, uh, they're beginning to move in, 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 that very, in that very direction, using basic income to eliminate and privatize uh, existing systems of social provision.
0: Now, I think there's a certain strand of the libertarian left that finds that somewhat appealing, that they see the welfare bureaucracy as intrusive and patronizing, and poor people shouldn't have conditions uh, placed upon uh, their assistance. Make They can make those choices themselves. So the, the welfare state is seen as intrusive and, and heavy-handed. Uh, what do you say to that kind of uh, that argument?
1: Well, of course... there's there's absolutely no doubt that existing systems of income support are are rooted in the sort of the the tradition of the English poor laws, and they are indeed intrusive, and they are indeed sub-poverty and and inadequate, and uh, we, we, as an organization, challenge that on an ongoing basis and demand an end to bureaucratic intrusion, and, and we fight for adequate income, Uh, But we don't think that basic income, as it is likely to emerge in this present political neoliberal context, is going to be what the left libertarians want it to be. It's going to be designed by the architects of the neoliberal agenda. It's going to suit the interests of the Silicon Valley crowd. It's not going to be based on people's wishes. It's going to be based on an existing political reality.
0: So it would be a step backward from the status quo.
1: Yes, precisely. Uh, And I mean, most disastrously of all, if you now arrive at a situation where you have reconciled yourself to the notion that low-wage precarious work is an inevitability and all you can do is steer some tax money in the direction of of people working for poverty wages, uh, I think that's a disastrous strategy particularly at a time when internationally so much exciting happening in terms of challenging low-wage precarious work. You have the fight for 15. Uh, you have uh, a challenge to inadequate minimum wages across uh, across North America. You have McDonald's workers in the UK taking up struggles, Amazon workers in various parts of Europe. The alleged inevitability of low-wage precarious work is being resisted. and uh, Rather than provide... Uh, a cash payment out of the general tax revenues, Uh, the issue is to fight for decent wages.
0: Now, what about the issue of the robots taking over? I'm skeptical of that myself, but that's a very popular line on both left and right. Uh, Do you think the robots are going to replace workers?
1: The robot future has 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 a very long history of being imminent. We've been told for a very long time that that everything's going to be replaced by by robots. And and in practice, uh, the situation is much more nuanced than than the the sort of the doom and gloom robots take over tomorrow scenario. But I'm not denying that there are real issues of technological displacement. And those things have to be challenged. Um, Right now in Germany, trade unions have taken up a struggle and won real ground on a fight for a 28-hour work week. That's a really realistic way of, of actually challenging issues of, uh, of technological displacement and, uh, and, and job loss and, 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 and fighting with it in a meaningful way to believe that uh, you know, Elon Musk and the Silicon Valley billionaires are going to set aside a portion of their profits to, uh, to provide a, a living income to people that they technologically displaced is just not the way it works under capitalism. It just isn't going to happen that way.
0: Supporting basic income seems in part like a way of withdrawing from the struggle over defining the nature of work and, and working conditions. It's just like, we give up, you you handle it.
1: I absolutely agree. For all its radical uh, pretensions, basic income tries to make its peace with the realities of the neoliberal agenda and and hopes that there's a kind of a social policy end run around those harsh realities. And I think at root it reflects a kind of a a demoralized disorientation on the part of a section of the left. Um, But there is no social policy end run. If technological displacement is a threat, we have to organize against it. We have to challenge it, and we have to fight for a society in which the increase in the productivity of human labor is a benefit for all of us and not something to be feared.
0: And Musk and his colleagues in Silicon Valley would not want to see a basic income that was really anywhere near the level of the lowest wage. We don't want to discourage the work effort, right?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. This is the delusional aspect of the, of the, you know, the universal basic income myth. I saw a little cartoon the other day that was circulating on the internet where you had two little stick people, two little stick people. And the first one was saying, uh, damn, a robot took my job. Uh, Now I'm going to have to look for another source of income. And then the second stick person was saying, yay, a robot took my job. I have basic income. Now I can do something meaningful with my life that just doesn't correspond to reality. This system can't operate without economic coercion. And, uh, you know, uh, Elon Musk's basic income, whether it happens here or in Mars, remains a a fantasy.
0: I'm speaking with John Clark of the Ontario Campaign Against Poverty. Now, The OECD a while back did uh, the math on uh, basic income, comparing how much it would cost versus the existing welfare state. and I think it was two or three European countries they looked at. And the message is, you know, regardless of what you think of their numbers precisely, uh, the message is, which I think is kind of hard to argue with, to have a basic income at a civilized level would be very, very, very expensive. And uh, really the only way to make it affordable would be to have it be very low and eliminate all the other uh, welfare programs. I mean, Is there anything wrong with that math?
1: No, I think the OECD report was probably uh, quite correct. The, uh, the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives here has done a, has done a similar kind of a, a breakdown of things and actually suggests, very interestingly, that for about half the cost of providing a basic income that would only has, have a goal of lifting people out of poverty who are in poverty, not really a universal program, but for about half the cost of that, you could introduce 15 billion dollars worth of major changes that would, that would sweepingly provide social housing, that would uh, provide dental care, that would provide pharma care, universal childcare. So yes, a, a, a truly adequate basic income would be enormously expensive. The OECD has said it the Canadian study I, I, I mentioned, uh, the Scottish Government has done a similar study uh, that, those, that they all confirm that perspective.
0: Now well, let's talk a bit about some philosophical issues. First, the idea of work itself. There's a lot, of, uh, a lot of support for the universal basic income. On the left comes from people who really think work is a terrible thing and humans should be liberated from work as much as possible. I don't really understand who would perform this, the labor that would keep society going, but the, you know, there, there's an argument in this anti-work crowd. Do, do you think there is something valuable in work in itself that uh, we should uh, try to develop and encourage or should we just take this anti-work attitude uh, that is, is popular with you know, Kathy Weeks and, and folks like that?
1: As a society, we certainly need uh, a labor process. We certainly need to be productive. We live presently under an exploitive system in which the uh, in which uh, in which a small class of people profit from the labor of other people. And I'm certainly not reconciled to uh, to that position. But that's the whole point about this notion of ending the tyranny of the, of the, of the labor markets, as, as one progressive basic income advocate has put it. it it's a kind of a, a delusional post-capitalist capitalism in which uh, people can decide whether or not they want to enter the labor market. And if they do, they do so on their own terms. And that's not the basis for this system. You know, When they first created capitalism, they created it by driving the peasants off the land. Because if the peasants had their own plot of land, they wouldn't need to work for capitalists. Well, basic income is like imagining you could give the land back to the peasants and still have capitalism. And you you, you really can't. Uh, I'm not looking out for the welfare of the capitalist system. I'm just saying there isn't a a social policy way to make it nice.
0: And uh, another philosophical angle – you can trace a lot of the, uh, the thinking behind the basic income to Milton Friedman's negative income tax proposal for the 1960s. And for Friedman, a way of providing money without a government welfare structure uh, and also preserving the market system, the freedom of choice and such. It sounds like you know, some of the, the benefits you're describing try to take away the market, to decommodify the, the basics of life. So it seems like a universal basic income, in a sense, is accepting the logic of the market as our instrument of distribution. And uh, it gives up any challenge uh, to the notion of of market dominance. Uh, It just seems to make everything a matter of of, of, uh, how we spend our money rather than um, trying to uh, think of a post-monetary way of organizing a society.
1: Yeah, I, I think you've I think you've absolutely hit the nail on the head with that observation. I think that's completely correct, and and that's why I think that that as a radical proposal, basic income, intentionally or not, is, is a fraud, because it does reconcile itself to uh, to the marketplace. Indeed, it, it 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 looks to massively extend that commodification process by turning everybody into a, a shopper with their basic income in the. Uh, in the neoliberal marketplace, and, and that's not the direction we want to go in. We want to go in the exact opposite direction.
0: Oh yeah, so talk some more about the direction you think would be preferable. Short of a total social revolution, I mean, what, what would be a, a, a good way to reduce poverty and compress uh, inequality?
1: Measured up against the kind of notion that it is going to be possible to get the state to provide us with an unlimited strike fund in the form of a basic income uh, so that you can work or not work, you can do what you want with your life, If you believe that's possible, I I can't possibly provide uh, a vision or a dream that measures up to the beauty of that vision, except that it's just not going to happen. We are, after 40 years of neoliberalism, fighting a largely defensive struggle. And... uh, If we're going to go on the offensive, we've got to fight for things that really count for something and and that are attainable. We've got to fight for reduced hours of work at no loss of pay. We've got to fight for free and accessible and expanded public services. The existing income support systems do have to be rid of their moral policing and bureaucratic intrusion, and and we have to fight for income adequacy. Uh, we have to struggle for these things. And I, I'll be the first to say that I think that the society we live in, where a handful of billionaires have more wealth than everybody else, is not a society that can be rooted in social justice. We are going to have to fight for an egalitarian and very different society.
0: People who, on the left who advocate the basic income, do you think they've just uh, kind of given up and they've lost uh, the ambition for that, that kind of transformative consciousness we talked about?
1: I, I think that's very much the problem. I think we've had 40 years or more of neoliberal attack. Our unions are weaker than they used to be. Our social movements don't have a great critical mass. Many political parties that once advanced, uh, at least partially progressive perspectives, have have accepted the austerity consensus. We've suffered some real defeats. And I think what emerges is this sort of hope that there's just a way to make it all right. There's There's this basic income solution that will put things back in place and uh, it's it's beautiful on paper but it's not it doesn't correspond to reality so yes I think basic income is really in the end as it to the extent that it's embraced by the left is it it, it does reflect that kind of a, a demoralized and disorientated view of
0: things. I was John Clark an organizer with the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty based in Toronto. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Some of Mendelssohn's songs without words, Opus Thirty Number Two, performed by Daniel Barenboim, a chestnut, yes, but a lovely one. And now China. In early March, the National People's Congress repealed the two-term limit for the Chinese presidency. Term limits were initially imposed, as we will shortly hear, to prevent the creation of a cult of personality around the leader. But Xi Jinping, the current president, seems to lack all reticence in that sphere. He holds the country's top three offices. In addition to the presidency, he's also general secretary of the Communist Party and head of the military. He assumed the presidency in twenty thirteen and the other two offices in twenty twelve. And now he can hold them for as long as he draws breath. What does this all mean? And what are Xi's ambitions for China over the longer term? Here's Isabel Hilton to explain. Hilton, a journalist who did extensive academic work in Chinese studies, is editor of China dot net. In the interview, Hilton speaks of China's Belt and Road Initiative. This refers to a vast multi trillion dollar infrastructure scheme centering on transportation across Asia and Europe and extending into Africa to build roads, railways, ports, and power grids to promote trade and not, secondarily, Chinese influence. It involves something like 68 countries spreading from Rotterdam to Jakarta. Now, here's Isabel Hilton. So, uh, Xi Jinping has just been declared something like president for life in China. Precisely what does this entail and what does it mean?
2: Well, it's a slightly curious move. As you may recall, Deng Xiaoping, the great reformer after the end of the Mao era, was trying to set in place a series of structures in the Chinese state and in the party that would guard against any one man attaining the kind of power that that Mao Zedong had attained and the bad things that, that can therefore follow from that. So, He instituted a number of measures. One was a a move towards a more collective leadership. And uh, the other, the one that's relevant here, is the tradition that a Chinese president could serve two terms uh, each of five years. So that after 10 years, essentially, he had to step down. Now, this has a number of knock-on effects. If you know that you have to step down at the end of 10 years, you moderate your behavior. You don't want to have a whole set of enemies waiting to get you as you step out of office. So I think that the tenor and tone of the administrations that followed Deng Xiaoping was altogether calmer than they, any of them had been in the in the era of uh, Mao Zedong's predominance. And the second thing is... That it solves a question that has bedeviled Chinese politics, which is the question of succession. And all through the the imperial period, you know, 2,000 years of naked power struggle and succession struggles, we see the bad effects of of not having a constitutional succession um, process. And we saw it also in the first 30 years of Chairman Mao, when every person who was named as number two and therefore who could expect it be expected to succeed Mao, ended up either dead or in jail. So, you know, it's a recipe for instability, and it's a, it's a curious move at this point.
0: Where did it come from? I, was there a great upsurge among his colleagues and comrades, uh, or did he lead the way to this declaration? What, what, how did they, how'd we get here?
2: It's certainly being presented as by acclamation, but I think that if, if you track what, what Xi Jinping has been doing in the last five years, there's no doubt this was a carefully prepared path. He's had five years of removing his enemies through the anti-corruption drive. he's had uh, a process of, of taking back state power into party hands, and a, a really massive um, personality cult, you know, the kind of elevation of uh, of Xi Jinping and his thought into a position in the party. So you've got a structure now uh, which has changed direction in the last five years where the party is very much back in control. And Xi Jinping is very much back in control of the party. Now, having said that, you could say, well, why did he need to be president for life? Because the powerful positions in China are party general secretary and head of the the military commission. And he holds both of those posts and those are not time limited. So there must have been another reason why he felt that this this position was essential to his consolidation of power. Um, There were a couple of possible explanations for that. One that it dovetails very well with an international role and that as president, you know, he gets to interact with other presidents, whereas as general secretary of the Communist Party, it's a little more complicated, you know, to meet the queen, for example, to choose an example from my own country or to meet a U.S. president. Um, And the second possibility is that although the post is not the most powerful in China, nevertheless, to have it occupied by someone else might give uh, a platform for opposition to Xi Jinping. So he now dominates all three major positions in China for the foreseeable future.
0: Like him or not, Mao is a very substantial figure in world history. Uh, What does Xi Jinping bring to this role?
2: Well, he he's shaping up to be pretty substantial too. I mean, Mao's qualities of being substantial were uh, were pretty troubled because because one of the difficulties of being you know of having all the power is that there was nobody to protect you or indeed your people, from your greatest mistakes. And Mao's greatest mistakes accounted for the death directly of perhaps 50 million of his fellow citizens. So, you know, an, an unknown number, but estimated by, by Chinese analysts, um, died as a result of the Great Leap Forward, horribly of starvation. And as I say, Chinese analysts put that between 30 and, and 50 million higher estimates, which you know, go up to 80 million, I don't think can be substantiated. But then there were the deaths in the, great, in, um, the Cultural Revolution and in land reform. So, you know, there were a, a great many dead Chinese as a direct result of Mao's policies. Now, I don't think Xi Jinping is going to launch that kind of violence. But the more you have a personality cult and the more you have a vertical political system, which depends on the favor of the man at the top, the less likely he is to get contradictory advice, because, you know, pleasing him is the way to be promoted. So the risk of of policy error is greater. It's not clear, really, because this is a very opaque system, what Xi Jinping's policy ambitions are beyond the ones that he has already stated, which is essentially to make China great again, Uh, you know, to be a substantial country on the world stage to get the respect that he feels is due to uh, consolidate China's global trading position through the Belt and Road to manage this very tricky transition uh, through the middle income trap, which China is now embarked on. And we'll see. I mean, if he manages to pull those off, then, then you know, that will be kind of a success. He's also added in his speech, for example, to the 19th Party Congress, Uh, ambitions around uh, cleaning up China's environment, making China in some ways materially a fairer society. You know, China, a lot of people have got very rich in China lately. And I think that, you know, that there is a lot of resentment as the economy slows and and as opportunities uh, decrease. So China has some tricky moments ahead. And if, Xi Jinping succeeds in the next 10 years in getting the country through these difficulties, then, you know, he will go down as a fairly significant figure.
0: What is the scope of his power, though? Uh, Is he constrained by other levels of government, uh, other cabinet ministers, any kind of legislative presence, judicial presence? Uh, How much absolute power would he have?
2: It's pretty absolute. Uh, you know, this is not a system which is which is full of checks and balances. There is technically a constitution and technically the National People's Congress is the highest authority. But we've never seen the National People's Congress overturn a decision made by the party. And, you know, even any modest votes against or abstentions are, are the subject of some interest. But they've never been enough or they've never been strong enough. Uh, to contradict the party, and and Xi Jinping has now embarked on a series of administrative reforms in China, which which bring a lot of the state functions, again, directly under control of the party. The legal system is, is absolutely and explicitly under the guidance of the party. So it's hard to see where the checks and balances come from, particularly if, you know, the only other substantial entity that might challenge him is the army, and he's head of the Central Military Commission. I guess uh, the big state-owned enterprises uh, are powers in themselves. But again, he now holds so much power. And although he may have to negotiate a bit, I think that his will would prevail. And the other powerful entity within the party, which is the standing committee, the Politburo, which is seven people, you know, are largely people now appointed by him, and he will outlast any of them. Uh, so, you know, hard to see what's going to constrain him.
0: Uh, what about the relation between the party and the state? You've talked about that a bit, but uh, let's hear a little more about it. Uh, is the the state subordinate to party?
2: Yes, completely and explicitly. So even in the constitution, which theoretically gives the citizens all kinds of rights, uh, you know, the first the first clause essentially says that the Communist Party leads, and so all of those rights are you know grace and favor uh, given by the party and can be withdrawn by the party. And so, for example, in the five years of the anti-corruption drive, which has you know, led a lot of people into prison and, and stripped of their assets and so on, it, this was a party-led process whereby a party member could be taken into you know, the party disciplinary procedures, which can be pretty rough. Um, and at the end of several months of silence, they would be produced for a court to rubberstamp their sentence. Now this is being reformed in some way to incorporate the judicial processes so so you're actually seeing a steady state a steady takeover of
0: state functions by the Communist party that anti-corruption drive now I assume that uh, there is certainly a lot of corruption to pursue in uh, in China but uh, I imagine the pursuit of the uh, malefactors was fairly selective right
2: <laughs> yes well there's no shortage of corruption as you say and and you know without Without pushing this analogy too far, if a member of the mafia is arrested and, you know, charged with a crime, you don't really ask if he's a criminal because he's a member of the mafia. You ask, how did he lose his protection? And if if someone went down to corruption in China during this anti-corruption drive, the question was really, which power did he represent? Which faction did he represent? Why him and not any number of others? So, you know, it was pretty much the same. And it was a very useful instrument for uh, Xi Jinping to, to silence the opposition. It does have a downside, though, because, you know, you have a bureaucracy that you rely on to run the country. And after too much of this kind of thing, it, the bureaucracy kind of sits on its hands. It's not going to resist him explicitly, because that would be dangerous. But there's a lot of passive resistance going on in China. Uh, Xi Jinping has undoubtedly made a lot of enemies, which may mean that he... he <laughs> He couldn't step down safely, even if he wished to at some point. Um, so it's a process with mixed blessings. And also, it doesn't actually address the systemic causes of corruption. It just means that, you know, you are um, vulnerable if, if you lose your protection.
0: I'm speaking with Isabel Hilton, editor of Chinadialogue.net. Let's talk about some of the, the policy goals. You know, people have been talking about, for, it seems like I've been hearing this for at least a decade, switching the economy away from exports towards a more domestically uh, oriented consumption. Is any of that happening?
2: Uh, yes, it is happening. If you look at you know, the, the, the uh, proportion of services, for example, in, in the Chinese economy, it, it, it's hard to measure accurately, but it does appear to be going up. Um, you see some closing down of surplus capacity, but not enough. So steel and coal has been some, but there's also a drive to export quite a lot of that surplus capacity through the Belt and Road uh, process. And the the really difficult problem, I think, that the economy has is that since the global financial crisis, essentially the growth, such growth as we have had in the Chinese economy, has been largely fueled by debt, by borrowing. And now debt levels are really quite high. And, you know, if you were to have an effective bankruptcy procedure, you would probably have quite a lot of of triage at this point. It's not really clear how the state is going to deal with that going forward. There have been some measures to clean up what they call grey banking and shadow banking sectors where financial instruments of the kind that caused so much problem in the Western financial system were devised by local authorities and by state and enterprises in order to go on fueling their growth. Uh, But, you know, you can't run like that forever. And uh, that is one of the problems that Xi
0: Jinping is going to have to address. People do uh, make some calamitous pronouncements about uh, the collapse of the Chinese uh, financial system and with it the real economy. Is there anything to that? Do you think the Chinese can manage it?
2: they've managed it before they did have you know absolutely catastrophic state of banking some years back they they cleaned it up once The, the Chinese state still has relatively deep pockets they have the power to to stop a kind of cascade collapse which would cause tremendous you know drama in China because you know the Chinese investor or the Chinese bank account holder is very quick to get on the streets when when the money isn't there anymore and in fact even you know investors on the stock market if you look at how they reacted to the, to the to the stock market crash um, 18 months ago, you know they were out there demonstrating, saying, "Where's my profit?" So this is a, a pretty sensitive stuff in terms of the general population. But what I but the effect that I think it will have, you know, is that if you can't find other sources of growth, what you are risking is kind of just bumping along. It's a bit like Japan after you know reaching much this point in the 1990s and then having nearly 20 years of of almost no growth. And and that happened in Japan when they'd reached a rather higher level uh, of GDP per capita. So the risk for uh, Xi Jinping, who, after all, heads a party that has essentially said to people, if you stay out of politics, we will make you materially better off. And that's been the message since Tiananmen in 1989, may not be able to give it to deliver that kind of growth that will allow people you know to feel that they can afford to forget about politics and simply concentrate on on becoming more prosperous you know it's going to be much trickier if you have a, a, an effectively stagnating economy
0: and then another long-term policy concern uh China's international role what are China's ambitions as a uh Trump uh, gradually cripples uh, American uh, standing internationally.
2: Well, you know, thank you very much, President Trump. I think is what they're saying in in uh, in Beijing uh, because you know they hardly have to lift a finger uh, to be seen as you know a responsible power these days. But there have been a few missteps. You know, there've been some good things. I, Xi Jinping's speech at, at Davos was a model of responsibility and commitment to the Paris Agreement and so on. But but. Because Trump is opening up this space, and because all of the United States' allies are getting extremely nervous at the, you know, at being left, as it were, you know, in, with, to face China without a reliable guarantor of global security anymore, you know, the Chinese have tended to overreach rather, um, and I think that that's probably not good for China as it learns to exercise global leadership. So, you know, a small example when when the British Prime Minister Theresa May went to China, the Chinese demanded that she sign a kind of blanket approval of the Belt and Road project. Well, you know, no serious western politician is going to do that, you know, because you then ha- you have approved things, you know, that haven't happened yet or you've approved, you know, whatever whatever might happen. So that's not good. And if you see, for example, the state of play between Australia and China lately, this is a lot of Australian anxiety and pushback about an undue uh, exercise of Chinese influence in the form of influence by in political parties, intimidation of Chinese students, intimidation of Western academics who don't follow the party line and so on. So you've got China trying to maintain in the world the same image of party leadership that China maintains in China. Now, that's complicated. So if China is to grow up, as it were, as a, as a global power, it's going to have to learn to take criticism and not to be so extremely sensitive to it um, as it is at the moment. So uh, this is a learning process for China. Uh, on the hard side, we've got Increased military spending, we've got part of the Belt and Road Project is the acquisition of port facilities right across the Pacific, big investments in cyber warfare, in submarine capacity, and so on and so forth. So China is becoming both a hard power and a soft power. And if the Belt and Road Project is to proceed, China is going to have to assume responsibility for security in places like... Afghanistan, Waziristan, Balochistan, let alone, you know, Xinjiang, its own territory, and those connections through to Central Asia. So China's going to have to do quite a lot of of fairly rapid learning about how you manage global assets and how you protect uh, infrastructure investments uh, in in the world, in a world that's not necessarily friendly.
0: What are their ultimate ambitions with all these international moves? You've got, you know, kind of pretty coherent, it looks like, strategy of economic and political, uh, extension of economic and political power. Uh, they're kind of lagging on the cultural power front so far, but uh, I imagine that would be a coming coming along uh, down the pike. But what, what's their ultimate vision? What do they want?
2: I think the ultimate vision is, is really, a, as I said, a restoration of the sense that China is the center of its world. And, you know, that was the way China felt about itself for many centuries as an empire, partly because it didn't really go very much further. You know, there was one brief period in the Ming Dynasty where ships went up and down the coast of Africa, and there was always land-based trade along Silk Road. But essentially, China was content to treat its immediate region uh, and the states and its, its neighbors in the immediate region as tributary states, which uh, paid homage to China as the, as the great regional power. It was 20% of the world's economy, which is pretty much where we're heading back to. And so I think China wants to restore that position in its immediate neighborhood. That has implications, obviously, for the United States and its allies. And China wants to be able to preserve its, uh, its own system of government against rival systems of government. Uh, I don't think I need to explain that much, much further. And in, in pursuit of that, I think I think China is also steadily setting up parallel institutions. So its own, as yet, small multilateral investment bank in AIIB. Uh, it it is is kind of devising rules that you know suit China rather than entirely accepting rules that uh, have been part of the post-war order. So I think you'll see. China increasingly building a world that suits China, but it but trying not to overreach.
0: And how do they read the bellicosity coming out of some of the people around Trump who clearly think of China as uh, as a scary enemy?
2: Well, I think China's pretty used to that, certainly in uh, most political campaigns. You know, the, the, the understanding that, that American politics seems to need an enemy and that, that they have been the choice lately. I don't think that China contemplates for a moment that they are likely to come to an armed exchange. You know, this is a reasonably sensible leadership and nobody gains. So they aim off for domestic politics, and it, I think that's kind of alarmed by Trump's unpredictability. But otherwise, you know, Trump suits them pretty well, because he leaves, as you say, you know, the, the diminution of American standing. And influence in the world is is an opportunity for China. If it went too far, China's anxieties would be that it would have to step up prematurely to, as it were, restore order and guarantee, you know, trading conditions and all those things that China still depends on. So I don't think it wants Trump actually to push the United States off the cliff, but to you know weaken its its standing is just a, a gift because. You know, if if you if you look at you know, Chinese uh, democracy activists, for example, you know there isn't very much that that is going in the favour of that argument right now. At least the party can say, "Is that really what you want? Look, democracy produces people like Donald Trump." <laughs> yes,
0: uh, and finally, f- well, from what you say, uh, it sounds like China has a very serious leadership class that can think about long-term issues with a considerable degree of rigor and clarity uh, at a moment when those uh, faculties seem to be lost in uh, Washington and New York and London. Uh, Is that a fair impression?
2: Well, it's true that they have a serious uh, political and administrative class, because, you know, you you don't get to the top of China without years of training running, you know, your small town and then your province, and, you know, you you have to deal with politics. But I think we we ought to Always to remember that that we we don't see Chinese politics because it all happens inside the party, but that doesn't mean that the politics is not there, and that you know there are not factions and there are not power struggles. So Chinese politics can look pretty serene on the outside and then suddenly erupt into the most extraordinary bloodletting. It's like a Tudor court uh, on a bad day, and and so you know we can we can overpraise the system, but certainly yes, people have had a lot of uh, experience and training. And if you do hold all the power, yes, you can do uh, quite a lot of long-term planning without having to face an election. Now, again, I go back to my earlier point that that has its advantages, but untrammeled power can lead to untrammeled bad decisions as well as good ones. So, you know, it depends on how that leadership is exercised.
0: That was Isabel Hilton, editor of ChinaDialogue.net. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this some of Call the Police from LCD Sound System. Till next week. Bye.